0: Hey buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, Sacramento, California based filmmaking company. And uh right now we're uh doing the uh editing on uh Lady Hyde and uh Emmanuel in Sin City and uh kinda of taking a little holiday break right now on those, uh recording these episodes around uh American holidays of Thanksgiving and then coming up Christmas and uh starting a new job on this end, so uh, yeah, kind of putting those in a little bit of a vacation time for me, and then I'm going to start back up again probably uh, maybe just before the new year. So Anyway, so this is the Frank Observer Podcast, obviously is why you've tuned in, and this is uh, episode 65 on that journey, and uh, we've pretty much hit the one-year mark, like the last episode or this episode, somewhere around this time, but definitely around this time frame. So, uh, once again, thank you all for listening to these episodes, and uh, we went through now and done 65-plus uh, Jess Franco films, uh, a little under halfway, I think, something like that. So, Anyways, uh, if you like this show, please consider donating. There's a download button there next to uh, the podcast for the holiday season if you want to give us a tip, and uh, any donation is appreciated, so thank you all for that, and also uh, please uh, subscribe to the show, uh, download it, tell all your friends, uh, let everybody know that there is a Just Franco podcast that drops every Wednesday morning uh, episodes, and uh, keeping on that, going through here. Also, too, a little heads up, uh, we're going to be having a shuffling of uh, guest hosts and reviewers uh, coming up here, and I'm also going to be doing some solo episodes to uh, get them in the can for time constraints and scheduling problems and a lot of other stuff going on, so uh, yeah, we want to get that going and keep the show on track. So uh, you're going to be hearing uh, weekly episodes and some solos and with some new voices, so giving you the heads up on that. So this is an interesting film that we're doing this week for uh, episode 65, film 65. Uh, it's known as many titles and in many forms. The first version of it played and then went away. And then was acquired later on um, and re-edited with um, two other films, uh, scenes from two other films. And those two other films are Midnight Party and Shining Sex, along with the original uh, to 69, uh, which ended up making up the film Justine later on. So uh, the version I have that I'm going to watch soon is Justine, um, or Justine and the Whip. The Joe DiMaggio uh, recut with scenes from *Shining Sex* and um, *Midnight Party*. So, but uh, Stephen Thrower um, on this um, volume two, *Flowers of Perversion*, the Just Franco Guide, Volume Two. He has uh, *Julietta '69*, Portugal and France, 1974-75. Original theatrical title in country of origin, Julieta 69, France. There is no known Portuguese version of the film. Theatrical re-edit by Joe Diamato is titled Justine, uh, Italian theatrical title. Uh, Justina Leti Lugaria, Spanish theatrical. uh, Video of the Italian re-edit. Also, Le Porno... Le Bedini de Justine, the Italian theatrical advertising-only title, um, The Porno Lust of Justine. Uh, let's see, alternative titles, Giulietta 69, Giulietta 69, again, uh, La Giugiaria, um, Unconfirmed, Sexual Fantasies of Justine, uh, De Julieta Justine, and the Whip, Bootleg DVD, which I've seen it referred to as that. Uh, production companies: uh, Jess Franco, his company Manicoa, was the original version. Then he ended up selling it to uh, Danny Films, D A N Y, uh, Danny Film uh, Rome. They, they, they did the Italian re reedit. Uh, theatrical distributors: Rex International, France, Marabout, Cosmopolitan Films, Colombo Films, and Orange. Uh, Rex International is out of France. Marbou is out of F- Paris. Cosmopolis Cosmopolis Films. Interesting name, not Cosmopolitan, but Cosmopolis Films is out of Brussels. Colombo Film out of Rome and Orange listed in Archive de Cinema Italiano. Okay, timeline on this. First shooting period is uh, Autumn 1974. Second shooting period, uh, April 75. Played Paris in March 31st, 76. Metz, France, June 9th, seventy six. Marseille, in France, June sixteenth, seventy six. French visa issued July 9th, seventy six. And then the uh, Italian recut the certificate issued for that was July thirty first of seventy nine. And then played Turin, October 9th of nineteen seventy nine. Then finally Madrid, oh actually not finally. Madrid, May fourteenth, eighty four. Then. Barcelona, February twenty fifth of eighty five, and finally Seville, June 29th ninth of eighty five. So yeah, I played about uh, ten years after, well, about nine years after the uh, first issue of the first film. So played quite a lengthy run as um, the theatrical recut. All right, original uh, running time. The original version was eighty two minutes. The uh, France version was sixty four minutes. And Spain was 80, 95 minutes. Uh, video running time uh, converted. Uh, Italy is 84. And um, Spain was 85. Okay, director, Jess Franco. Billed as Dave Tuff. That's a new one, credit-wise. Director of photography, Jess Franco as Dave Tuff. Assistant director, Claudio Ber- Bernaberry. Uh, costumes: Lucio Ferris uh, Del Pozio Prince and Okay, that color Sound okay Music uh, Nico Fidenco Published by West Enzoni Musico Supervision Jody Amato So yeah, that was the original um, Original um, connection was Jody uh, Amato was the supervisor On the film Okay, cast uh, Let's see here this light so I can see a little better, Uh, Juliet 69, Lena Romay, Juliet, Alan Petit as Charlie Christian, Donna Tin, Gilda Arashnio, Ramon Ardid, Marlene Melar, Victor Mendez, Richard DeConnect as Bigotini, Jess Franco as Jess Frank, uh, Lisa Ferrer, also known as Lisa Franval, uh, and uh, Fernando Franco, Monica Swim, and Caroline Rivera with Victor Costa. And in the re-edit, we still have Lena Rome, Gilda Arashneau, um is added, um, Ellen Petit, Jess Franco still, Ramon Ardid, Lisa Ferreira, Jay Scott, Mel Rivera is different, uh, Marlene Myler, Monica Swim, Caroline Rivera, Evelyn Scott, Yule Sanders, Olivia Mathot, Lee Kornikoff, Medicaline Quintiquan, Ramon Ardid, and Nicola Guterres, so they omit um, footage of Victor Mendez and uh, Bigotini from the X rated recut. That's funny. All right, so we'll save the synopsis for the review period of this portion. All right, so I'm gonna kind of go over. Um, he writes quite a bit on this, actually. So I'm gonna kind of kind of skim over certain parts, but I reread, I uh, read this earlier to uh, kind of get a feel from it first, instead of just cold reading it like I usually do, and kind of wanted to see how I have it broken down. So. He has uh, production notes. little can be said about the original version of Julieta to 69 because after its French cinema release in 1976, it dropped out of circulation entirely, and to this day remains frustratingly inaccessible. Although Franco's French films of the 1970s often remained on the exhibition circuit for years after their first run, popping up on ad hoc basis well into the 1980s, Julieta to 69 was not so fortunate. Although it performed well enough for a film of its type, spending four weeks on release in Paris before touring the regions, it was never re-released, nor did it surface on French video in the 1980s. No one has been able to trace the original French release for DVD or Blu-ray, so the only version we have, or that we can currently see, is a boulderized mashup supervised by Jody Amato in 1979, which chewed... The film into pieces threw half of it away and mixed the remainder with scenes from Franco's Midnight Party, 1975, and Shining Sex, 1975. Opinion is divided among those who saw the original theatrical release. Uh, Some say it was a total botch-up of heartbreaking emptiness that goes almost as far as self-sabotage, while others said it was a scary, dark, depressive movie. Very morbid, surely one of the darkest of Franco's movies. Not, No trace of humor, just wicked sex, despair, and a strange climax of dark poetry. So what we do know about the elusive film? Well, like Female Vampire in 7374, Justine 69 was a patchwork production made intermittently over several months. According to Petit, Alan Petit, it began shooting in Portugal in 1874 on 16mm, with money and perhaps film stock squeezed from the budgets for Les Chatelices, Les Jeunesseux, and Les Grandes and Reduces, a trio of Franco films bankrolled in the summer of 74 by Robert D. Nessel. Franco shot a few scenes featuring Victor Mendez and Lina Romay, then showed the unfinished film to Di Nessel and asked for more money to complete it. De Nessel, however, was experiencing financial difficulty at the time and declined to take the project any further. Franco therefore spent his own money to finish the film, shooting in April 75 at a luxurious hotel near fontenay Trésigny where he'd recently made Celestine an exorcism. Among the cast members for the second shooting period was Carol Morelli, real name Marie Royer, a friend of Petit's who later came to prominence in French hardcore under the name Marlena Maillère, See jean fantas Fantasmis or José Benefère's Vanmeck de Moutier. While the film, with the film completed, Franco reportedly created an English-language version at a Paris recording studio using pre-existing music by Daniel White, including a theme which White had composed for the famous children's TV series Belle and Sebastian. This was then sold to the double-headed Franco-Belgian distribution partnership called Rex International Cosmopolis Films, the later which had just released Franco's Female Vampires in Belgium, however... According to Petit, which is one of the few to have seen the original cut, cosmopolitans felt the score trims were needed to prevent the film from being banned outright. Franco was furious and walked away from the project an unusual step for a broadly pragmatic director who had already made numerous compromises for producers such as Robert Di and Eurocene. Why did Franco react so strongly to producer interferences on what was already something of a patchwork production? Evidently, he felt that there was something special about the film. Perhaps the revolutionary mind in Portugal was contagious. Uh, Julietta 69 was shot during the Portuguese Carnation Revolution, which began with a military coup in Lisbon in April 1974 and lasted until November 1975. He may have also resented a minor distributor whom he scarcely knew, taking liberties which were hard enough to stomach from his regular producers. What happened next is a little unclear. Some accounts say that Franco washed his hands of the French release and took the film to Italy, where he sold it to Arijo Colombo an industry player who struck gold as co-producer on Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars. Um, if Columbo did buy it, he must have had a change of heart about the material. It lay follow until 1979 when Franco Godenzie of Flora Films bought it, presumably from Columbo, and commissioned Joe D'Amato and Bruno Mattei to rework the material by adding scenes from Midnight Party and Shining Sex. Um... See, One wonders how Gondensy came to buy not only Julieta 69, but also Midnight Party and Shining Sex. After all, it seems so fortuitous they were shot very close together in early 75, which meant that the two stars, Alan Petite and Lena Rome, look exactly the same in all three films. Appearances even match when it comes to Romay's distinctive personal grooming of the period. The most likely explanation is that Midnight Party and Shining Sex came via Prestige Films, who distributed them to Italy circa seventy six to 1977. In charge of dubbing at Prestige was the multi-talented Bruno Mattai, a close associate of Joe Mato, who went on to become a well-known exploitation director himself. Mattai is credited on screen as the editor of Justine, so it may have been he who had acted as a conduit between Donnie Films and Prestige. As it happened, Bruno Mattai was already familiar with Franco's style, having worked on several of his earlier films as editor, namely 99 Women, Count Dracula, and the Italian release of Venus in Furs. Um, Did he spot all the similarities and suggest to Gonzinzi that a montage of all three would be viable? Or did Franco himself recommend to Mattai that he use Midnight Party and Shining Sex? Someone must have realized before the deal was done that the films were unusually well-suited together, and that the person must, therefore, have been very familiar with material. So either Bruno Mattai spotted the connection because he's worked with the Italian releases of Midnight Party and Shining Sex, or else because Franco himself was aware of the plan to create a new version of Julia 69, and suggested to Mattai that he should obtain the prestige prints of the other two films. Typically, in such a complicated journey to the screen, is entirely hidden by the screen credits for Justine, which mentions only one production company, D.A.N.Y. Films, a business set up by Joe Diamato himself in 1973 to launch his first ever horror film, a delirious and spellbinding piece of gothic lunacy called Death Smiles at Murder. And while it's probably just a coincidence, Diamato's tale of an icy female beauty wrecking vengeance Wrecking Revenge from Beyond the Grave bears more than a passing resemblance to Franco's Venus in Furs. Franco on Screen. Franco's cameo as a pathologically nervous man who hires a prostitute for voyeuristic purposes and refuses sexual contact when it's offered to him is both ironic, the porno director as gynophobic wallflower, and to some degree revealing, Franco often claimed that he was something approaching a pure voyeur, keen to watch, not participate. The magazine he's reading is Euro Cinema, January 75, volume number 23, the cover which depicts Pamela Stanford suckling Lena Romay in Franco's brilliant erotic horror film Lorna, The Exorcist, 1974. And if... And as if we needed evidence that Lorna is a film close to Franco's heart, we see him caressing a still from it. It's strange, though, that he doesn't perform a double-take when one of the girls on that very magazine cover, Romay, enters the room and exposes her pussy. (coughs) Cast and crew. Jody Amato, it must be said, deserves better than to be castigated for his work on Justine. Commercially, at least he's the closest thing there's been to another Jess Franco. And although the artistic similarities are superficial, based mainly on the two men's shared love of cinematic sex and horror, he deserves credit for directing some outstandingly morbid and transgressive movies. Like Franco, Diamato created a genre-busting combinations of horror and pornography in films like Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, 1977, La Note Erachique de Morti Viventi, 1980, and Porno Holocaust, 1981. Like Franco, he directed a sex themed Mondo, <clears throat> Sexy Night Report, 1977, A Demons in the Convent Tale, Imaginini Emma, Emma, Emma di un Convento, 1979 a grisly contribution to the early 80s slasher craze, Absurd, 1981, good film, a couple of Machi-style epics, A Tour of the Invincible, 1982, and its sequel, 1984, as well as a deluge of hardcore porn. Like Franco, Diamato's directorial results vary, according to the money available, and the frame of mind's with which he approaches his projects, but unlike Franco, his core style is mainstream friendly, he brings a hard nosed commercial savvy to his work, and there's no imp of the perverse within him, such as the one which drives Franco to such extraordinarily stylistic extremes. If Diamato's content is something just is sometimes just as shocking as Franco's, the film is rarely so often garde or distinctive. He makes his name on the international film markets with a highly lucrative string of Emmanuel films and had the business sense to remain in control of his work and reap the long-term benefits. Franco himself found Diamato simpatico, describing him to Alex Mendibill as a professional guy and a very nice person. He died in 1999, leaving a body of work in the region of 200 films. Okay, um... Monica Swim, a regular presence in Franco's films of the 1970s, was initially puzzled when a mention was made of her involvement in the film, but her recollection sheds an amusing light on Franco's spontaneous approach to filmmaking. I didn't even remember being in that movie, and then all of a sudden, some pictures came back to me. I saw myself again in Portugal, in Cascius, tanning on the roof of the hotel where we were staying during the shooting of The Nuns, La Chantolise, La Grandes, and Reduces, and... Roland. With me on the terrace were several girls from the team, Lena, of course, and also Lisa Fara and Caroline Riviera. If I remember correctly, we were there, more or less naked, lying on the sun loungers, quietly taking in the sun when Jess appeared with Ramon in the camera. After asking each one's permission, he walked around for a while, shooting rather long shots of those who had accepted the principle. We knew, of course, which that one day he would use these images in another film, the ones we were officially shooting at the time. Which one? Mystery. In such cases, Jess was careful not to reveal his plans. It seemed the scene was seen in Julieta 69, but anyway, it would be a great exaggeration to say I played in that film. I bronzed silently with my eyes closed on a chaise lounge. Music. Julieta 69 featured music drawn from the works of Franco's regular composer, Daniel White. But for the Justine version... Joe Diamato chose selections by his own regular musical collaborator, Nico Fidenko. The title theme, I Celebrate Myself, was called from Fadenko's Soar to DiAmato's Emmanuel in America, and further cues came from DiAmato's Emmanuel and The Last Cannibals. Nice. Uh, the replacement of White's music with Fidenko's illustrates with great clarity how essential music is to the spell that Franco weaves. For instance, the scene borrowed from Shining Sex, in which Lena Romé, and Evelyn Scott Have Sex is hugely altered in mood and impact. In Shining Sex, it has a bizarre, alienated vibe with a powerful undercurrent of sexual dysfunction and fear. With the trimming of the scene to a shorter length and the imposition of Fidenko's swoothing strings and Euro Lounge melodics, the scene is normalized, perhaps not entirely. But overall, the scene, as redesigned by Diamato, has a dreamy romantic patina very different to the dysfunctional weirdness crafted by Franco. Locations. Uh, Lisbon in Portugal, with some interiors filmed in France, abuses in a mansion near Fontenay-Tresigny in the Val de modern previously seen in Franco's Exorcism, 1974. Adonatine's lavish bedroom is the same room in which Exorcism's religious maniac Vogel, played by Franco, murdered Maria Theresa, the dominatrix in Exorcism, while the hotel room in which Julieta makes love with Andrea and Raymond is almost identical to the one in which Vogel murdered the Cartiers in the same film, presumably an adjacent suite. The Shining Sex and Midnight Party sequences were shot in the south of France and the outskirts of Paris. For more details, see the entries for these films. All right, connections. The title, of course, suggests Desaad's novel, Julieta or vice amply rewarded 1797 however as already noted the film is a completely unrelated to Sade's text Sade's Juliet is a character of limitless immorality and opportunism Franco's Juliette winds up shooting herself in depression after the suicide of a lover on the windowsill of Donatine's apartment we see a pile of books including one of the 16-volume set called Auvers Completes Marquis de Sotte, published in Paris by Circle de Loup-Presson in 1967-68. In Justine, Chris quotes the King James Bible, Leviticus eighteen seventeen: Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, neither shalt thou take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness for they are her near kinswoman. It is wickedness. Romay wears her cape from Female Vampire in the scene prior to the whipping sequence where she accompanies Donatane to his hotel room. All right, French theatrical release. Uh, Juliet 69 performed fairly well for a low-budget hardcore production and was by no means an ignominious failure. It opened in Paris at four cinemas on... March 31st, 1976, and during its first week pulled in a decent size audience of 11,647 viewers. In its second week, at the same screen's minus one, total attendance rose to 15,190. For its third week, the film moved to a single screen, uh, The Neptuna, and for its fourth and final week in Paris, it moved to the Sébastopol, uh, the final audience tally for the four-week run was 21384 paid. Uh, this puts Juliette to 69 well within the reach of previous Franco films, such as Les Chateaux and Les Jeunisseurs, but falling short of the likes of Celestine, Bonnet et Tour de Fer, one of Franco's best grossing erotic films of the period. With the Paris run finished, Juliette to 69 moved to the Provinces, on June eighth, seventy six, it opened in Metz, a city in the northeast of France, near the tripoint border with Luxembourg and Germany. Amazingly, it was placed number one for its opening week with an audience of four thousand four hundred and ten. By comparison, the second highest draw that week was Roman Polanski's *The Tenant*, which attracted thirty one thirty six viewers. Oh, more than a thousand. Why was the film such a hit? Perhaps the fact that Metz is a garrison town explains. Why is sex? Why was it, uh, perhaps the fact that Merritt is a garrison town explains why a sex film found such an enthusiastic audience. The following week saw Juliette 69 play Marcel in the south of France, arguably the second most important market in the country. This time it was less successful, attracting only one thousand nine hundred and twenty-two paying viewers. Why? Uh, perhaps because competition was more intense in Marcel, um, a city second only to Paris when it came to the number of sex cinemas on offer. Figures for provincial screenings published in the French trade uh, don't include attempts below 800, so it's possible the film stayed on the circuit a while longer. Uh, what's clear, though, is that Juliet to 69 performed pretty well for a sex film while not a lot of commercial support. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to skip the other versions. So, um, let's see what we got on this. It's funny that this film is such a collage of the next two films that we're going to be discussing, uh, films 66 and 67. Um, Okay, so... um, Five years later, in 1984, the Adamato edit played theatrically in Spain under the title Justina Lady Leguaria, gaining an on-screen quota from the Persian poet Omar Khayyam. A day you have spent without love, there is no day lost than that. It's unclear whether this appeared in the original version as it does not appear in the Italian Justine. Um... As noted before, Alice Arno is giving top billing on the Spanish print and the Italian poster, but she doesn't appear in the film. Victor Mendez and Bigotini are credited in the Spanish version, but they don't appear either. Their names seem to be held over from the original 1975 version, but their ne- their scenes were not used for the Diamato cut. Uh, Lisa Ferrera is credited as Lisa Ferini on the Italian poster, while Bigotini is credited as M. Bigotini. <laughs> Uh, Obsession lists Estudio 8, Lisbon as producers of the original version, although Alan Petit's book, Just Franco en Les Prosperes du Dis, does not concur. Estudio 8 were later responsible for Franco's Opala de Fuego, 1978, and Sinfonia Erótica, 1979. Their only other known credits is the Spanish-Portuguese co-production, El Padre Copelias, 1968, a musical by Ramon Comas. This, at first, appears unconnected to the Franco films until one spots Victor Costa and Joaquin Dominguez in the credits as production managers. Uh, Costa was the production manager on four of Franco's Portuguese shot productions, which are Dracula's Daughters, The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, The Demons, and Les Chetulises, and production assistant on another, The Jeunesseur. Dominguez, full name Joaquin Dominguez Risego was the major domo of Triton PC, a company that would go on to produce Franco's The Sadist of Notre Dame, 1979, La Chicas de Copacabana, 1978-79, uh, El Sexo y es Este Loco, 1980, and El Lago de la 1981, Lake of the Virgins. Um, furthermore, Franco's O Palo de Fuego, 1978, was a co-production between Triton and Estudio 8. It's been speculated that Estudio 8 was Franco's own company set up to produce his Portuguese-lensed films. To me, it seems more likely uh, that Franco bought into Estudio 8 after someone else, perhaps Riago, had already set it up. This would explain the w- odd, one-out production O Padre Capalilias. So Alright, well that's what Stephen Thrower's got written on um uh, Jess Franco for the film, uh Powers of Flowers of Perversion, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume Two. Uh yeah, so that's quite a bit on this film, uh, compared to other films. So yeah, it was interesting though, between uh what how is originally made and then how it was cut up and added with the two other films and all that. So Alright, well after uh the bumper music you'll hear the review of um this film, and uh, Julieta 69, or Justine, um, however, the version Justine, the version I got to watch, so uh, I think I'm going to probably do this one as a solo one, so, but yeah, so stay tuned after the bumper music, and I'll give you my review on Julieta 69 slash Justine, all right, let's have some fun. Hey, buddies! Welcome once again to the Frank Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group, and uh, right now in post-productions on two films. Um, taking a little holiday break right now, uh, doing a new job and everything, and uh, had some car difficulties and a bunch of dumb stuff happening in real life, so I had to... Uh, Kind of put that on hold a little bit for about the next last few weeks or so, but uh, we'll start that up again real soon. And uh, also with the holidays and a new job and everything else going on, too, kind of doing a streamlined version of the Franco Observer podcast, which I had mentioned uh, maybe an episode or two before. Um, And uh, Eric took a leave of absence from the show, so uh, I'm going to be going to of course the guest reviewers from uh, different episodes and doing a lot of solo ones as well to keep the show on track and to deliver the weekly episodes that we look forward to hopefully so uh, I hope I do actually love putting these out so hopefully you will enjoy listening to them as well so uh, we'll have some with uh, guests and some guestless this is a guestless episode. Um, Franco Observer Podcast, a singular episode with just the host, Jason Rudy, and uh, of course this is film 65, so this is episode 65, we're on track with uh, film and uh, episode number Simpatico in synchronicity, and this is Justine, uh, formerly Juliette 69, and if you listen to the earlier part, we go over this whole film, um, how it was put together. How it's a combination of three films: uh, Julieta and uh, *Midnight Party*, and *Shining Sex*. Um, I had just watched this before rec- uh, before recording this, and um, I didn't really care for it. Um, Lena looks great and stuff, but you know, any film that's a collage of three films, chances are it's not going to be that good. So, and unfortunately, that case was that way as well on this one. So. Let me go ahead and read you um, what Stephen Thrower wrote in this um, volume two of his Jess Franco book, Flowers of Perversion, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, volume two, covering the years 1975 to 2013 by Stephen Thrower. Uh, Let's see this one. So I'll give you the synopsis of both films, Julieta 69 and uh, uh, Justine. Um, so here's Julieta 69, is short, and Justine's quite lengthy. Okay, synopsis, Julieta 69. At the end of a dissolute life, Julieta returns to her native country, Portugal. Retreating to a hotel room with the intention of committing suicide, she thinks back to the people who have most influenced her and the sexual experiences that have brought her to her current state of despair. She remembers her initiation by an obese oriental diplomat. Her affair with a lesbian servant, her perverse experiences as a prostitute, and her meeting with Raymond, a uh, see, a superficial playboy. Finally, she dwells upon Donatine, the only person she ever really loved. Donatine, a devotee of the Marquis de Sade, introduced Julieta to sadomasochism, but could not himself completely embrace the Sadean enjoyment of crime and cruelty. As a result, he could never satisfy her sexually. In love with Julieta, and aware that their relationship was doomed, Donatan kills his girlfriend, Gilda, and then committed suicide by hanging. Desperately lonely, trapped in a cruel existence with no hope of happiness, Julieta puts a gun inside her vagina and pulls the trigger. All right, so uh, now the synopsis, the synopsis for <clears throat> Justine, which is the version that you can get because, unfortunately, Julia to 69 is lost in the ethos until it's uh, pulled out somewhere of some hidden library. But now we have this version, Justine, which is a collage of three films. All right, uh, Justine. In a state of intense disp- depression, Justine, a stripper toys with a loaded gun in her bedroom and reminisces about life with Chris, a rock musician at the club where she works. For some time, the two had enjoyed a blissful, open relationship, but recently it has floundered. It says foundered here, but it's supposed to be floundered. Uh, we see the course of her recent life through a series of flashbacks depicting sexual encounters with men and with women. The first is with Helen, a... Rich, older woman Who likes to watch Justine strip Justine and Helen Go back to a hotel room And make love Although Helen is detached And sexually repressed After a tense discussion With Chris About the need To make changes In their relationship Justine takes time out And heads for the coast Depressed and lonely She sits on the rocks And gazes out To sea. Sensing that her relationship Is falling apart She tries to forget About Chris In the arms of Joe "'Helen's young chaperone. "'At a party, she accepts his offer to dance, "'and the two of them go to an upstairs bedroom and make love. "'They are joined for a while by a woman they see "'taking a drunken nap in the adjoining adjoining bed. "'Chris, meanwhile, hears a rumor "'that he's about to be sacked from his nightly spot at the club. "'He confronts Robert, the owner, and threatens to leave. "'Robert sneers that he can do as he pleases, so Chris quits.' In voiceover, Justine pines for Chris, but admits she was forced to go into prostitution to support the two of them. One day, she meets an old flame, Ingrid, a woman she knew when they were teenagers and with whom she had her first sexual experience. They become intimate once again. To get Chris his job back, Justine flirts with Robert, who warily agrees to her demands. Chris, however, is angry when he hears what she's done. Returning to his apartment, Chris beats Justine in a fury with a leather whip. When he storms out without making love to her, she lies on the floor masturbating and licking her own blood. Which is actually a good scene. Uh, Next, she seeks solace in the arms of Robert, whom she describes as a normal man. Happiness eludes her, however, as he suffers a fatal heart attack while making love to her. It's actually a funny scene. Uh, After a further threesome with Chris and a female friend of his, which ends with him whipping both girls in a religious frenzy, Justine slides back towards prostitution, visiting a strange little man who likes to watch women masturbate but cannot bear to be touched. Joe, who lives next door, (coughs) offers Justine a more passionate sexual encounter in a bedroom with... Ingrid and Justine, Chris sits by the bed, reading from a King James Bible about sin, sex, and womankind. Justine has a threesome with Joe and Ingrid, and during the revels, starts to whip her female friend, just as Chris done to her. She's an unconvincing sadist, however, and her attempt to assert dominance ends with Joe mounting her from behind. One day, Justine discovers that Chris has hung himself in his bedroom, Frenzied with grief, she filates his lifeless body, which is the highlight of the film. Uh, back in the present, trapped in a cruel existence with no hope of happiness, Justine puts a gun inside her vagina and pulls the trigger. Yeah, the ending of the film is pretty hardcore, because it's like the, she comes in and finds the guy dead um, hanging from a noose, and then she uh, basically sucks his dick and then fucks him or backs into him. And then uh, it cuts to her laying in bed thinking about it. And she sticks a gun in her vagina and pulls the trigger. It's like, wow, two pretty hardcore, crazy scenes back to back. So, yeah, the ending didn't save the movie, but it definitely was a highlight. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over um, the list. uh, The Frank, the Franco, the Franco list. The list, the list, the list. So, with this list is a list that uh, I put together of things that reappear in Franco films over and over. And I always look for it when I watch the film. In between following the film, I always like to see if he goes to his um, um, and true tropes. So, alright, Body of Water. Yes, we have Body of Water in this. We have uh, Sailboats, number two. Number three, Boats. We have that as well. Palm trees, I didn't really see any because uh, we see the boats and uh, we don't really see... There's some travel shots, one tree shot, but no palms in this, along with no jungle sound effects. Number six, chained up person. Um, No, there's a lot of whipping and stuff, but no um, chained up or that type of... There's S&M, but not that type. Um, dance scenes on stage stripping. Yes, there's like... God, I think I'd written it down. There's... Uh, like three different strip sequences with Lena, basically stripping against the wall. And then it cuts to other people watching. That's a separate shot, which is he does that all the time with dance club scenes, with bands and with strip club sequences. Uh, and this book, it says it's like the first film he did it in, but that's not true. It was like, uh, I know it's in like, um, um, Vampiros lesbos and nightmares come at night and all that. That's one of the earliest ones that I remember. But, it's probably done before that as well. Uh, okay, so let's see. Um, no, actually, no, probably that, because that's about with the nudity and everything. Um, okay, uh, number seven, dance club, dance scenes on stage stripping. Yes, I said multiple, to- multiple times uh, with red lights, so that covers the red light as well. Uh, number eight, club scenes dancing, like people dancing together in a club. No, nothing like that on this. Uh, nine jazz music a little bit not too much a lot of classical and other cool music in this this is actually really good music that's one thing about this film is that the music is really good because it's from three different films i think or it's something mixed i can look and see but i think it's mixed of different stuff uh number 11 number 10 uh, excessive zooms which always coordinate with number 11 out of focus shots what he does is he'll zoom and then As a filmmaker, you always zoom all the way in and get your focus to see where your focus is and pull back to see how far you can go. And then you zoom back to keep everything in focus. But he likes to zoom in, and he'll zoom in too far, and then things go out of focus. Uh, He does that quite a bit. I'll go over with the notes. I'll read after this and kind of mention specific scenes that I caught it in. Um, But yeah, but the footage was really good besides that stuff. Uh, Let's see. Number 12, mirror shots. Yes, there's very many cool mirror shots in this. A shot where she's shaving herself, a lot of shots of her and somebody else in bed. You can see the mirror, uh, the reflection off the shot, catching it and everything. So that was really good. A lot of good mirror shots in this. Number 13, mind control theme. Um, Well, she's controlled by the notion of the thought and everything of him. Uh, She's not put under hypnosis per se, but she is focused on a thought. So I'll say that's a push on that one. Okay, number 14, magic tongue scenes. Yes, this has many magic tongue scenes, from her and a bottle to her and another woman and her and guys and just her giving a head with the magic tongue. And, yes, she's magic tongue quite a bit in this film. Uh, Number 15, red light. Yes, I mentioned that before. Many red light scenes, from the very first scene with the band playing to the strip sequences to other sequences. Um, Sheepskin Rug, no, I didn't say. uh, And since it's not the Urban CD trick, I'm going to stop with the masturbation with the C item. But is there masturbation sequences? Of course, it's Lena. Um, Let's see, number 17, Mad scientists. No, no Mad Scientist. Uh, 18, Fish Tank Shots. No Fish Tank Shots. Uh, 19, Talking Animals, Parrots, Monkeys, anything like that. Dogs, no. Uh, 20, End Credits, yes or no? Yes, there's one. Uh, I think it's... uh, uh, fine, if I, any, Finn. Um, then we have handwritten notes. No. Uh, no handwritten signs, nothing like that. Uh, number 22, spiral staircase shots. Didn't catch any in this film. It's actually a few. Number 23, inept cops. None in that film. This film. Uh, and finally, number 24, belly chains. Yeah, this film has quite a few belly chains in this. Uh, Lena and other women. It's quite a popular uh, accoutrement in this film. You see diamond ones and gold ones and everything. All right, well, here's some of my notes from this. Um, yeah, you have a red light opening shot with a band. Um, you have the Justine credit where it says Justine, and you see it like four or five times, like where the band's playing. There's like two songs they dub in over the footage of this band on playing uh, Chris, I guess the guy was and then his band, and then you see people sitting there watching it, and you can tell it's like at a cafe or something. It's a totally different place, and it doesn't match, but they put red lights on some of the guys watching it to try to patch it together. So um, Jeff Jess Franco has the credit of Dave Tuff, which I mentioned earlier in the uh, opening um, review, or not the review, but uh, the setup where I go over all the details of the film. Um. So yeah, crowd watching separate shot You have four or five times where it says Justine And then goes by a little bit And then ten seconds later, Justine Again, you see it like four or five times, pretty funny uh, First nudity in this film is at 2 minutes 27 seconds You see the three gals sunbathing And uh, in the intro of this I talked about uh, Monica Swim talks about where that shot was taken from So yeah, that's the first nudity in this film Which has nothing to do with the rest of the film at all Uh, You have a strip sequence uh, with a red light um, right away. You have Lena's magic tongue, which I mentioned, with a bottle and a girl. Um, You have Lena with belly chains, so we see those mentioned quite a bit. Uh, You see water and sailboat during the driving footage. Um, The Julia footage is really nice, actually. The stuff has really good color and lighting. The stuff of her with the gun and the thinking back to things all through the movie. They use those shots. And it's in the hotel room. Um, Let's see. There's like the hotel room from, um, um... The Grand In Reduces, and, uh... Let's see what else. I think, like, Roland or Celestine. Like, I... They the hotel room a few times, I've noticed. Um... But, yeah, it's it's in this film as well. And it's the hotel room that she's in, uh... When she's thinking about killing herself. And then also is a scene with the blonde lady from La Grande Dame Reduces. That's not Pamela Sanford, but the other lady, um that's with the Suki lady and, uh, the really blonde skinny lady with the, um, belly chain, um, real tan and stuff. She's, she's in this one as well. So yeah, she's in that room with her. Um, so let's see. Uh, you have, um, out of focus shots with Lena, um, unlacing her outfit, which was footage from the Julieta. She had, Lena has this really cool, like, uh, Shorts and a shirt that have just like you just lace all the way up the side and she undoes those and just zooms in way too close when she 's doing it and gets it out of focus but it's it 's a cool sequence with the uh Zidane and such of the unlacing and the taking the time before she un opens up the package and makes you wait, which is a really, really nice sequence because this film there 's so much just close ups of Lena and you see all of logically everything about her. Um, every, every, you know, every area. And Ramonard did, you see up his bum and everything else. So it's like totally crazy. So it's cool. And they have these nice, like just slow, uh, seductive scenes with Lena, which is really nice. Um, let's see, we have the, uh, Oh yeah. And then Lena masturbates with a gun, which is pretty hardcore. Um, and then there's a nice lens flare. Actually, uh, it's a, a natural shot when he's panning across, when she's on the bed with the gun, uh, catches off the lights, probably the nicest shot in the film. Um, this lady has a cool diamond belly chain, that was like the second belly chain of the film, which is like 20 minutes in, you already have two belly chains, pretty strong. Um, yeah, and then also too, I was pretty shocked at this, I didn't know there was like full, like hardcore sex scenes in this, Lena uh, has like like three oral sex scenes, and uh, she has sex with Ramona, I did like twice in this film, a different part, two or three times at different parts, and it's like full like penetration shots, no um insert shots it's it's literally them it's full hardcore penetration shots from behind and up under and everything it's pretty shocking i was didn't know that was going to be there um so yeah we have that um then you have the scene where lena uh shaves off her quite bountiful bush her mound that she shaves clean, or cuts, and then shaves clean with shaving cream and a razor for a woman to try to say that she's a a little girl again, uh, to go back to her virginity with this other woman that she's interested in, makes love to her and stuff, and uh, so yeah, Lena's grooming habits, that scene is quite long and pretty impressive if you're into uh, watching a, person shaved down. Uh let's see, you have uh jazz with the gal in bed. Oh yeah, this is a really cool jazz music with that was going on with the Lena's magic tongue. Uh many mirror shots in this. Same hotel room, like I said, as Lagramardusa's. Um there's like three different red light strip strip sequences with Lena. Lena has a cool outfit on the last one. The third one, she wears this cool like chain mail kind of bikini bottom. Uh and she dances against the wall and uh really really good in that. And there's a cool scene where she wears her vampire cape from um, female vampire in this, which is pretty cool. And a mirror sequence with her boyfriend at the time uh, before the whipping scene where uh, uh, Chris whips her and she licks her blood, which is a really good scene. She masturbates um, in that sequence as well. Uh, but it's funny too, This, when she's thinking back and forth, there's different grooming in different sequences. Some she has her big full uh, pubis mound and then other one she's totally shaved so it's interesting uh, same bed also as exorcism and uh, look at my shelf one second here yeah and Lorna and then in uh, exorcism I believe it's the same bed now with the cool like twisty uh, bed posts he uses like two or three films uh, or um Roland too or Celestine, Celestina one of those that sits in there because um, yeah I've seen it there a few times uh, let's see what else do we have here um, oh yeah also too you have that uh, there's like a famous dress Lena wears a lot it's like this sundress that's got multicolors uh, like rainbow stuff and uh, spaghetti straps really hot and she wears that and this and there's a scene where Jess is like this little, like crazy little timid guy that gets afraid of women and doesn't let anybody touch him but he loves to watch and Lena Does this really hot? uh, She wears a uh, dress in there, comes in and lays down on on the bed on her back and and, uh, pulls her dress up and uh, pulls her underwear to the side. She's quickly shaved and starts rubbing herself a little bit. And then she has these cool red panties uh, that she pulled to the side and uh, she unties them, which is cool. Instead of pulling them down, you untie them from the side like a bikini and she takes them off and uh, starts masturbating a little bit. And Jess Franco starts freaking out. But, uh, yeah, she looks really good in that scene. And then she uh, takes the money and runs and sneaks off. But then Ramon and Ardid and her have sex again. And it's like full close up. And it's kind of odd because. Uh a little bit, you know, like, ouch, ouch, because Lena has, like, these really, and, like, Jess Franco zooms in really close, and, you like, Lena has these big razor bumps, uh, and her vagina is all, like, red and irritated, and, and is just fucking her, it's just funny, you just, like, concentrate on the rashes and all the different red marks on her, it's like, yikes, you know, um, and there's, like, funny music, too, real flowery, like, music during this, is really funny, um, And yeah, like I had written, uh, I'd put a star, Lena sucks Chris's penis as his dead body hangs, then sticks a gun in her vagina, squeezes the trigger, and kills herself. That's while flamenco guitar, piano, and strings play. It's a very odd uh, ending to this 81-minute menagerie of three films, a mirage of three films. Like I said, Shining Sex, Midnight Party, and uh, Julieta 69. Well, hopefully one day, uh, Julia 69 shows up in its original form, and they can restore it and put it out on Blu-ray, and it's the Lost Jess Franco film that played. Because it did play, like we had mentioned in the introduction, it played quite a bit, and it's it's been known to be out there. So, I don't know, hopefully they can find it and uh, restore it, because this film's, I mean, it sucks because you could see, like, I guess, like, a third of this film is julietta or maybe half so and, and like i said the footage is really good and it looked good and um i'd be interested to see the original version with uh, the regular actress in that because this is a good period of jess's he was really uh putting out some good stuff and this is uh a good a good part so one day hopefully we'll we'll see that come through again but i don't know but uh yeah i i uh, can't really say i enjoyed it um it was okay um it's kinda like one of those films that like if you have it, I mean if you're a completist you want to get it of course. And uh it's out there, great market DVDs, um places, you know. Uh Euro sex films or Euro uh Eurosex cult films. I forgot the place I got it from, but yeah, the place I always talk about, write me and I'll tell you where to get it. But uh yeah, so I mean the 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 copy looks good though. Uh the D V D R is like quite clear and uh it's a shame too because it's like the footage looks good, it's not all beat up, so it's like you could you know, that I mean, the Julietta footage, so hopefully that film is out there somewhere and it gets restored or whatever because uh the way it looks, it's definitely you want to check it out. So Alrighty, well this is uh once again episode sixty five and if you like the Franco Observer podcast, you can always donate to us on the holiday time. I would sincerely appreciate it because uh any little bit helps dollar, fifty cents $10, whatever you want to throw, I'm totally happy. Uh, if you like it too, please download every episode and subscribe to the show. We always drop them every morning, every Wednesday morning, very early. Uh, usually, like West Coast time is 1 a.m., so 4 a.m., East Coast, and then everything else after that. Um, we're on all the favorite platforms that yours likes, of course, Apple, uh, Amazon, um, Stitcher. Um, it's just tons of them. Anyway, uh, please tell a friend, and uh, if you like it, let other people know. Keep building the episodes. Uh, it's 65 right now, so we're about halfway through. And uh, if you keep listening, I'll keep making them. So um, whether I'm doing it by myself or doing it with two people or three people or another person or whatever, I'm going to keep doing them. So you can't stop me. I'm the gingerbread man. Um, Franco, if you want to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of us at FrancoObserver at com. Or you can find uh, Franco Observer Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. And, of course, our mission statement is praise and memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. So uh, that we're doing all the time. So if you like Jess Franco and if you like Lena Lickalot, Miss Lena Romay, and Uncle Jess, then uh, please tell everybody about the show. And, uh, I'm a tried and true fan and, uh, God damn, I've seen about 70 Jess Franco films now. It's pretty crazy. And I got so many more to go. I mean, it's pretty crazy that somebody made that many films, you know, and even, even Joe D'Amato, you know, the guy that put this, uh, film together, uh, combined all these films, he's, he's a really cool filmmaker too and stuff, um, and very similar to Jess with the horror and the X-rated films and all the crazy stuff he did, uh, all the manual films and that, um. You know, I mean, his filmography is not as strong as Jess, but he has some good stuff as well, and he has a lot of films that I dig and watch as well, so I would never uh, slam him, because Joe D'Amato is the man as well, so. Uh, and so it's cool to have, like, this film that is, like I said, not the greatest, but you get this kind of, like, cool slam together of Uncle Jess and Uncle Joe, so nothing wrong with that. Alrighty, well, speaking of nothing wrong with that, I think that'll be my out, so, All right, well, um, happy holidays. Uh, This will probably be, I think, dropping like the end of December, somewhere around there, middle of December. So hope everybody has a safe end of year, have a safe uh, Christmas, have a safe New Year's, have a safe whatever holidays you uh, celebrate and even family, friends, loved ones, people like you, people like me people that have no one, people that have lots of one. May we all get together, may we all love each other. Take care.